Hey listeners, it's me, Brittany. And today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp, the world's largest therapy platform, which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. There's so much happening in the world right now, but it is important that everyone be kind to themselves and remember what they need to take care of themselves. Honestly, therapy has been a part of my personal regular practice for years now, and I really don't know how I was making it without it. I highly encourage everyone to invest in their well-being by going to therapy, and with BetterHelp, you can be connected with a therapist in 48 hours via text, phone, or video, no matter where you're located in this country. BetterHelp is also offering 10% off to undistracted listeners. So head to www.betterhelp.com forward slash undistracted to get started. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash undistracted to get started. It's Brittany. So I know a lot of us are excited about the upcoming Olympics. There's a lot to be excited about with so many amazing black women and BIPOC athletes headed to Tokyo. But if I'm honest, I am still pissed off every day about how sports treats black athletes. I'm thinking about Simone Biles and the rules that were basically changed to undermine her dominance. And of course, I'm thinking about Sha'Carri Richardson and the outdated marijuana rules that are keeping her from competing. Not to mention, the Olympics recently banned Soul Caps, the brand of swim caps designed for natural black hair. And let's also not forget about the black players on England's soccer team who missed their penalty kicks in the Euro final and have since been subjected to a storm of racist abuse. Across the entire world, we come together in our nation states for moments of supposed unity during the Olympics or the World Cup. But the moment, the moment, black athletes break the boundaries of permissive behavior, they are quickly, quickly disposed of. As my colleague Treasure Brooks said, the only time we seem to love black bodies is when we can hold them up as a trophy. And y'all, somewhere between being seen as a tool and used as a trophy, black people never actually get to be fully human. So Shakari can't grieve her mother's death and Wim Barry isn't allowed to share her opinion about the national anthem and Naomi Osaka isn't allowed to be depressed. So to all of the marginalized athletes, black athletes, brown, indigenous, trans athletes, to all those who wear your country's flag, while facing your country's indignities, we honor you, we see you, we value who you are in your full humanity. We are undistracted. (laughs) 
On the show today, Cree journalist Connie Walker. I'll be talking to the podcaster about the recent discoveries of Indigenous children's graves in Canada and the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women in North America. Tremaine was was out on a Friday night and she was last seen captured on surveillance footage leaving the Badlander Bar in downtown Missoula and walking Mm. down an alley. And that was the last confirmed sighting of Jermaine Charlotte. That's coming up, but first it's your untrending news. First up, Texas is now getting into the business of abortion bounty hunting. Yeah, you heard that right. A new anti-abortion law will soon allow any U.S. citizen to sue Texas-based abortion clinics, doctors, and anyone who aids in a person getting an abortion after six weeks. And if successful, the petitioner will receive a $10,000 award for every case they win. Here's our friend Alexis McGill-Johnson. They're talking about sue thy neighbor. They're talking about pitting family members against family members, friends against friends, and encouraging anyone in literally any state who does not believe in abortion or, you know, just needs $10,000 to go after anyone who is supporting someone who is getting access to abortion. You know, Texas lawmakers never cease to amaze me in the worst way possible. (laughs) This is next level Gilead. Snitching on people who get abortions for cash? Turning citizens into state law enforcers? We the ops now? This is, this is effed. A society that is okay putting the price on the head of a pregnant person for making a choice about their own body? That should frighten all of us. The GOP swears they're obsessed with protecting personal freedoms, unless you're the wrong kind of person. Then, of course, they're just obsessed with taking your freedoms away. Now, over in Charlottesville, the statue of Robert E. Lee, which was ground zero of the violent Unite the Right rally just four years ago, has finally been taken down. You know, that was the rally with very fine people holding torches and swastikas. After years of debate, Charlottesville removed not just that one, but three white supremacist statues last Saturday. They also took down a statue of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson and one of Lewis and Clark standing tall while Sacagawea literally kneels behind them. Charlottesville student activist and my personal hero, Zayanna Bryant, who started a petition to get the Robert E. Lee statue removed in 2016 when she was just 15, had this to say. Today, I'm feeling overwhelmed um, with pride and joy. I'm honored to be on the forefront um, of this movement in Charlottesville and and to stand alongside um, powerful Black women who have been leading this charge all over the country. Many of the country's Confederate statues were not erected right after the Civil War. They were erected during the Civil Rights era, and Black organizers like Zayana are recognizing them for exactly what they were always meant to be, relics created to intimidate all who might stand up against white supremacy, to try to scare us back into our place. So thank you, Zayana, and all of the Charlottesville organizers for taking your rightful place and putting these statues in theirs. Next up, I cannot get enough of Zayla Avant-Garde. 
She's the 14-year-old, of course, who won the 2021 script Spelling Bee last week. She's from Louisiana, and she made history as the first Black American to win in the Bee's 96-year history. The winning word, Maria. Yeah, I didn't know it either. Maria. M-U-R-R-A-Y-A. That is correct. <laughs> but spelling, which Zayla only started seriously doing two years ago, is just her side hustle. I love it. Basketball is actually her main focus, and Zayla holds three Guinness World Records, including the one for the most basketballs dribbled simultaneously. That would be six basketballs. I'm betting that this Spelling Bee champion will someday also be a WNBA champion. But for now, she's weighing the multiple full scholarship offers she's receiving from colleges and universities at age 14, for real. But what I love most about Zaila is that she's a young black girl with a joyful smile and a pure heart. So while we give her all the praise she deserves for her extraordinary talents, let's make sure not to objectify or commodify her or try to make her into anything but the bright young girl she is. We support you, Zaila, and all the black girls out there in whatever childhood you wish to design for yourself. And lastly, I have to shout out the queen, the icon, the moment, and the movement, MJ Rodriguez, who became the first out transgender person ever nominated for a lead acting Emmy this week for playing my love, Blanca Evangelista in Pose. You all know how much I love Pose. I'm glad you're finally getting your flowers and that them folks finally recognize what we've been saying all along. You more than deserve this recognition. And you better win, too. Coming up, I'll be talking to Connie Walker about telling the long overdue stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women right after this short break. Hey, y'all, it's me again, back to tell you a bit more about our incredible sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is making licensed therapy available through their platform where you can sign up and choose the kind of therapy that actually works best for you. Whether you prefer text or phone or video, you can connect with a professional on your terms and on your schedule. BetterHelp is more affordable than in-person therapy and offers financial aid, and you know we all could use that. When you sign up, you can give your preference for who you want to speak to, be it someone who identifies as BIPOC or who specializes in anxiety. BetterHelp is also offering 10% off to undistracted listeners. So head to www.betterhelp.com forward slash undistracted to get started. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash undistracted. And we are back it is a horrifying epidemic. Across North America, indigenous women and girls disappear without warning and are murdered at more than 10 times the national average. For more than two decades, my guest today has been working to bring attention to this overlooked crisis. Connie Walker is an award-winning journalist from the Okanese First Nation in Saskatchewan, Canada. She started off her career at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, where she made her first podcasts, Who Killed Alberta Williams in 2016 and Finding Cleo in 2018. 
I wanted to talk to her about her latest investigation for Gimlet called Stolen, The Search for Jermaine. But I first wanted to acknowledge the dreadful news that continues to keep coming out of Canada. Back in May, the unmarked graves of 215 Indigenous children were found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. And since then, the number of children's remains found at former residential schools has risen to over 1,000. Needless to say, Indigenous communities have been reeling. Connie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I know that I'm talking to you on the heels of some really devastating and unfortunate news. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? I mean, yeah, I just want to start there. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think like as a Cree woman or as an Indigenous woman who's been reporting on residential schools and and the intergenerational trauma stemming from residential schools for so many years, like this is in some ways, it's not new information, you know, like right. the Truth and Reconciliation Commission documented thousands of deaths in residential schools, like thousands of children who died there. But it feels very different this time. You know, there have been other terrible crises that have come to the forefront and, and made news, but this feels really different. I mean, you say it feels different. And I mm. also understand that in Canada, these recent discoveries in some ways have been met with a lot of shock among non-Indigenous people. Yeah. What do you make of the fact that so many people are shocked by what has been known by Indigenous people and and really should be known by everyone? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am struggling to process it, honestly, because on one hand, I feel like, you know, we've been trying to kind of raise this alarm for so long and mm -hmm. you kind of get used to people poo-pooing it or making it sound like it, it's it's not that important or I'm not sure. Is that a story? I don't like, I don't know, you know, like I've had so many of those kinds of examples in newsrooms before that now when people actually finally seem to be understanding the magnitude of what Indigenous people have experienced and they're feeling the weight of it in the way that we have felt it for our entire lives, it kind of takes my breath away and makes me feel the weight of it all over again. I mean, this is not a theoretical conversation for you, right? Your your own grandfather, you've talked about him being forced into a residential school. So you've seen these devastating effects firsthand in your own family. Yeah, that's also, I think, what makes it so difficult in some ways. Mm. I was covering the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was set up in Canada to bear witness to the stories of residential school survivors and to document their truth about their experiences in these residential schools. And the TRC mm. traveled across the country and heard testimony from survivors about their experiences as children, about being forcibly removed from their homes and families and communities and being made to attend these residential schools, not being allowed to leave, you know, having their hair cut at the door, their clothes taken away. You know, mm. some of them were given new names or identified by numbers in these schools. You know, they weren't allowed to speak their language or practice their culture. They weren't allowed to see their families, except for a couple of months a year, if they were lucky. Some children never got to go home at all. And they experienced horrific, you know, physical and sexual abuse in these schools. Mm -hmm. And so the TRC traveled across the country hearing these stories from survivors for six years. And at the final event, when they were releasing their final report, I was one of the reporters in the room. 
and the room was filled with survivors and intergenerational survivors. And I thought about my grandfather, you know, I thought about him. I didn't find out that he went to residential school until I was in university, even though I was very close to my grandpa. I was raised Mm. partly by him, but it wasn't until I did an oral history class in university and I interviewed him and he told me about being made to go to a residential school when he was six years old and how lonely that was for him. And, you know, my grandmother was a residential school survivor as well, and she actually ran away from the residential school that she was at. And, and there were so many children who who ran away from these residential schools and so many of them who never made it home, who died uh, trying to get home or who were forced to go back once they were found. But luckily my grandmother ran away and she was never made to go back. But that also meant that she never got to go back to school. And my father is a residential school survivor. And, you know, I, I know a lot about how residential schools have impacted my family and my community and have impacted my life. But there's so much that I don't know about that. And, and I think a lot of survivors talked about, you know, how important it is to expose the truth and to tell the truth about what's happened. And that until we understand the truth, we can't have true reconciliation. And yeah. what this is all, you know, all of this news and all of the discoveries that are being made right now are really kind of illustrating to me that we're still finding out the truth and we're still grappling with the truth and learning, you know, the truth about what's happened. And that's, you know, that's, that's a really hard place to be. Mm. Listening to you is making me think about our new secretary of the interior here in the United States, Deb Holland, mm-hmm. who recently opened up about her own family's history with residential schools. Mm-hmm. Her great grandfather was forced into one. She talked about in a Washington Post op-ed that she was sick to her stomach when mm-hmm. she heard this news coming out of Canada, but was also very quick to remind folks in the United States that we have a history, a brutal history rife with residential schools and boarding schools of our own. Like this mm-hmm. is an awakening that is really long overdue. Yeah, no, it's it's also the reckoning and understanding of how, you know, that history is connected back to everything that we see reported about Indigenous people and communities today, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, inequal access to healthcare during COVID, whether it's the crisis of violence against Indigenous women and girls and men and boys. You know, these are things that are just now, I feel like, starting to be talked about in mainstream media. And it's clear to me how that's connected back to this history of boarding schools. Um, But it's also, I'm kind of in, as a Canadian, I'm kind of in awe at, like, the action and the speed in which, like, you know, she she wrote that op-ed and then the next week announced the creation of this you know, investigation into boarding schools with a focus on trying to find missing children and and burial sites. And I feel like our countries have taken different approaches at trying to address these issues. And it's really kind of a fascinating thing for me, at least to to kind of feel like I'm I'm watching unfold. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Secretary Holland moved quickly in her tenure, but, you know, in reality, it has taken actual generations. But I want to shift the conversation a little bit um, Mm -hmm. and follow this connective tissue. I mean, we've been talking about violence against Native children, but you spent a lot of your career reporting and really correcting the narratives on violence against Native girls and women in particular. Can you give us some context on just how big a crisis violence against Indigenous women is? 
I mean, it, it's a crisis. It's a horrifying crisis. You know, we don't fully understand actually how big this crisis is and, and how many people it's affecting. But the statistics that we do have, I think, paint a horrifying picture. 80% of Indigenous women in the United States experience some form of violence. More than one in two have experienced sexual violence. And those are thought to be underrepresented statistics, like that not not every incident or, or abuse is, is reported. You know, similar to the truth about residential schools and experiences that survivors had, um, I feel like there's a similar reckoning and awakening to be had about the levels of violence that Indigenous people face today. I mean, like you said, this crisis is massive. It is horrifying. What really drew you to this work, to telling these kind of stories? Yeah, I mean, the first time I thought about becoming a journalist, I was actually in high school and uh, I grew up on my reserve, but I, I was bused to school in a nearby town. So I was one of, you know, a few Native kids at that time in my class. And when I was mm. in high school, a woman named Pamela George was killed and there was a trial for the two men who were accused of killing her. And it was a very high profile trial because they were two white university students. And... Mm. I remember reading the news and, and feeling like I knew more about the two men who were charged in Pamela's murder than I knew about Pamela. Mm. You know, one of them was called a basketball star. The other one was a hockey standout. And the way they talked about Pamela was that they said she was an Aboriginal prostitute. Like, and oh. and that was, I felt like all we knew about her. You know, we didn't learn about that she was a mother, a single mom to two young kids, that she was a daughter and a niece and an auntie. And the way that she was talked about in media and the way that she was portrayed, I remember feeling so angry about that and upset about it and feeling like, who are the people that are getting to tell these stories in journalism and are any of them Native? Is there any, are there any Native people in these newsrooms? And mm. and that was the first time I thought about writing something for, I actually wrote something for our school newsletter yeah. about Pamela George. And I thought about becoming a journalist. And so eventually I, I did, but it honestly was, you know, I was at the CBC um, and I got a job, my first job in journalism when I was 20, I think 21 years old. And I was there for a good 10 years before there was any interest or appetite in, in hearing stories like Pamela's. You know, it's taken a long time to yeah. make the very little progress that we have made. But now that we're here and now that, you know, I have the opportunity to tell these stories and to tell them the way that I want to tell them, I feel like a sense of urgency. Like I have to do this. Like this is so important for me. This is finally people are paying attention. Finally, people are listening. Finally, people are thinking and recognizing these are important stories and, and there's space and an audience for them. So your most recent podcast from Gimlet, mm -hmm. it's called Stolen. Uh, you look at the case of Jermaine Charlot, a 23-year-old Indigenous woman who went missing from Missoula, Montana in 2018. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a bit about Jermaine, about her, about her disappearance? I mean, Jermaine was a Bitterroot Salish woman from the Flathead Reservation. She lived on the Flathead Reservation just north of Missoula. And she was out in Missoula, which if you've never been there, like, it's a really nice town. Like it's a really vibrant college town. Mm. And Jermaine was was out on a Friday night and she was last seen captured on surveillance footage, leaving the Badlander Bar in downtown Missoula and walking mm. down an alley, like along a parking garage. And she turned the corner around this alley and that was the last confirmed sighting of Jermaine mm. Charlo. 
And Jermaine's case, you know, it, it has gotten quite a lot of attention in the local media. But at the very beginning, her family, like so many other families I've talked to, say that, you know, it was difficult for them to report her missing, that they were concerned immediately. Like the day that they couldn't get in touch with Jermaine, that was odd. She was always, she was very responsive on her phone. She was always on social media. And so her family tried to report her missing to the tribal police and to uh, the Missoula City Police, but it actually ended up being five days before she was reported mm. missing. And then really 10 days before anyone really looked into her disappearance. And what our pod, like our podcast was like an eight episode kind of deep dive on the investigation into Jermaine's disappearance, but also trying to examine what led to that night in June. Like what was what was happening in Jermaine's life that led to that? And and what we, you know, what we uncovered was that she she experienced, you know, violence throughout her life. And that actually every woman I met on the Flathead Reservation disclosed to me that they were a survivor of violence. Mm. And I think, you know, you hear the statistics, but I, it's like when you're standing in front of somebody and they're talking to you about violence, it's not violence. It's like, it's a traumatic experience. It's a, a child yeah. who's witnessed their mother being abused. It's somebody who has experienced a sexual assault or a rape. These are not small things. These are horrifying life altering events that so many indigenous women experience. And Jermaine was no exception. You know, she was also a victim of domestic violence uh, for, for years before her disappearance. I think that's what's so what I find so powerful about your podcast, I mean, you did this one, you did uh, Who Killed Alberta Williams, you did Finding Cleo, and you not only talk about these specific cases, you're really talking about the broader systemic and societal issues that may have contributed to their deaths, that contribute to this crisis. Yeah, that that to me is honestly like the the most important part of it, really. Like, that's the goal is to try to show how every single woman or girl or man or boy, like like Jermaine or Cleo or Alberta, you know, has a family and has a community and is not just a statistic that, that you know, as horrifying and as important as it is to know the statistics about these rates of violence. It's so equally important to understand how every single one of them is a person who has a, a life and a family and has a community that is still mourning and grieving. Mm. And I really like to humanize them, and I'm using air quotes, is like so important because of like this history of dehumanizing coverage that has, you know, really been so harmful to Indigenous people. In terms of journalism and reporting, like there's this long history of people coming into our communities and taking our stories and portraying us in ways that reinforce terrible stereotypes about who we are or the lives we, we lead. And so I really want to make space for people to understand and empathize with the human beings at the heart of these stories, but also to show how these are, are individuals that are part of a larger problem, that Cleo Semeganis, who was an Indigenous child who was separated from her family, was one of six children separated from her mother and adopted into a white family mm. as a part of the 60 Scoop. But she really represents tens of thousands of children who had the same experience in the child welfare system in Canada. And like for me as, you know, an investigative journalist, it's so important to put it in that broader context. I sometimes feel resentful that I feel like I have to kind of 
package these stories as a true crime mystery in order to, Mm. you know, I feel like engage people who might not think they're interested in Indigenous stories. But I also can see the impact that these stories are having. And and so, you know, I feel like it's worth it, but it is tricky. I mean, it is, it's truly staggering, the number of missing and murdered Indigenous girls and women across the United States, across Canada. I'm curious what you think is the reason behind why Indigenous women are so often the target of violent crime and why so many cases involving them go both unsolved and really unaddressed. I mean, I I think that those things are are really like hand in hand with the the same attitudes that are not interested in in covering these stories, right? Mm -hmm. Even before the podcast, you know, we did a database at CBC where we tried to document as many unsolved cases as we could of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. And when we launched this database, you know, we had found 232 cases. And our goal was, again, not to just you know, focus on the violence that resulted in in their deaths and disappearances, but to really also try to help people understand that every single one had a family and a community. And so our our team of researchers interviewed like over a hundred families of women who had had gone missing or who had been murdered, but their case was still unsolved. And like so many of them had been in the child welfare system uh, at some point in their lives. So many of them had struggled with some kind of form of uh, addiction. So many of them had experienced childhood sexual abuse. Like so many of them had family members who were residential school survivors. Mm. Like if you spend any time looking at this crisis, it does not take much investigation to unearth the bigger themes that are at play and how that's connected back to this context. But also so many of the families, like I feel like almost every family I've spoken to has talked about how police didn't take their loved one's death or disappearance seriously. You know, I reported on a a story about a woman named Amber Tuckerow who went missing in Edmonton, Alberta, and her mother reported her missing. And she was told by the RCMP that Amber was probably just out partying to give it a couple of days. And Amber was a mother of of a baby, a a young son, and she knew that she wouldn't have, have left him. I mean, I know one of the key issues is also the complexity of jurisdiction loss, right? Yeah. In Jermaine's case, um, you know, the Flathead Reservation is is a huge reservation. And there are mm-hmm. actually five different counties that have jurisdiction over different areas of the reservation. So depending on where you are in the reservation, a different police force would respond if something happened or the tribal police may respond. And that also is a problem, like not just for the response of crisis or an emergency where you have to call the police, but also, you know, for Jermaine's family, it was then it made it difficult for them to even report her missing and which police you know, agency was going to handle her disappearance and would they communicate with each other? And I think that like, I know that for the Flathead Reservation, like they are actually working to change that so that now all of the police forces that have jurisdiction on the reservation communicate with one another so you can go to any of them to report someone missing. And that's actually like just a recent change that's been made since Jermaine Charlotte's disappearance. But I absolutely like, I mean, I know that across the United States, it's different depending on which community you're in. Uh, and, and of course that yeah. would contribute to, you know, someone's ability to access services and and eventually get justice. I mean, we talked before about Secretary Deb Holland, 
now leading the Department of Interior, of course, the first Indigenous American cabinet secretary. But back in April, um, less than a month into her new role, she announced that new missing and murdered Indigenous uh, unit to prioritize MMIW cases within the department. How do you hope this new unit will really help the problem? You know what what I thought was so interesting about that announcement was that it was actually going to be, you know, an investment in resources to help solve cases because that that was a very different approach than what was taken in Canada. You know, there was a national inquiry in Canada to to try to address this crisis that exists here uh, in terms of violence against Indigenous women and girls as well. And I know that a lot of families in Canada were hoping for that. We're hoping for, you know, a second look at cases. There were so many families that we talked to who believed that their loved one's death didn't get a proper investigation or their disappearance didn't get a proper investigation. And so I think for families who are left with those questions and left with the agony of wondering what happened to their loved one, and and feeling like there's no recourse for justice, I, I imagine that that was a really welcome initiative. How that is going to address the systemic issues that are really at the root of this crisis of violence remains to be seen. And, and I don't I don't necessarily think that the creation of MMIW unit is going to address those things. You know, and what the inquiry in Canada uncovered was that those that there are so many different things that are impacting and contributing to the violence. But certainly, like, there are bigger systemic issues beyond individual cases that need to be addressed. Things like poverty, things about equal access to housing, uh, equal access to healthcare, education, clean drinking water. Like, there are so many, you know, huge issues that Indigenous people grapple with and face in our lives every day. And, And certainly, you know, I, I think with this growing awareness that hopefully there's also some attention paid to, to the bigger root causes as well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those bigger root causes now, because you're right. We we can pay attention to individual cases and hold people accountable, and we must. But ultimately, this has to be about preventing that violence and ensuring that Indigenous girls and women can really live thriving lives. So what ultimately needs to be done? You started talking about some of those things. Um, to really prevent that violence against Indigenous women from happening in the first place? Well, I mean, I think it's like, we I feel like we've come full circle in our conversation in terms of like, the first thing is understanding the truth about the reality that we live, you know, in Canada and in the United States, inequities that have been entrenched over years and decades and generations and really are also connected back to the truth about this shared history, to the truth about how Indigenous people were dispossessed from our our lands, like what has happened to the treaty promises that were made to our ancestors um, when, when they agreed to share the land? What are the effects of the intergenerational traumas that came from, from children who survived boarding schools or residential schools? Like these are all things that people are just beginning to open their eyes and, and wake up to. And there is not a, a simple single solution to addressing them. But it starts with acknowledging them and being mm-hmm. aware of them and, you know, truthfully understanding how this is not ancient history. This is something that is happening now. You spent a lot of time reporting on and talking about such difficult, traumatic crimes perpetrated 
against our indigenous sisters. And I just would really love to know personally how you how you take care of you. How do you get through this work? I mean, the like I obviously spend so much time talking about this violence and the problems and the trauma. And those are all incredibly important things. And I and I want to keep raising awareness and talking about them. But the truth is like, I am so lucky to be a Cree woman. I am so mm. lucky to be an indigenous woman. And I come from an incredible family and community that is rich and full of strength and laughter and beauty and culture. And like, there is so much joy and celebration in our lives and in our families and in our communities. And along with raising like awareness about the violence that we experience, like we also need to make space to showcase the diversity in our communities and and not just the diversity of like nations, but the diversity of experiences. Like we are not only pain and suffering and trauma, like there is so much beauty and resilience and hope and strength in our communities. And we need to make space for those realities to be known as well. And so I'm so lucky to come from like an incredible family and to, you know, be able to share in Indigenous laughter, which is so, uh, like, it's it's abundant and everywhere, you know, mm. in, in every situation. And I've learned a lot, like, I think through my work, like, I've been able to witness, like, the healing power of storytelling and how, you know, giving people the space to share their stories in a way where they feel, uh, you know, they have agency, where they have agency and they feel empowered to do so, I feel like can be such a healing restorative thing. And and I feel so lucky to get to do that in my job and in my work. And, you know, that's also what, what gives me strength and hope. I love that. Thank you, Connie, for all of the work that you do. Thank you for showing us the beauty and diversity of Indigenous womanhood and Indigenous life. It's my pleasure to join you. Connie Walker is an award-winning Cree journalist and the host of the Gimlet podcast, Stolen, The Search for Germaine. If there is one theme of this show, and frankly, there are many, it's that we can't heal or solve the things that matter if we don't talk about it. As Connie said, there is no simple solution to addressing the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and the continued traumatic legacy of boarding and residential schools, but it starts with acknowledging the truth. All of us, all of us need to wake up to the reality of Indigenous people's lives, the truth about the inequalities they've endured, how they were dispossessed and continually are dispossessed from their lands. As Connie reminds us, This is not ancient history. This is happening right now. Importantly, Connie made it clear that indigenous life is not exclusively pain and violence and trauma. So it is on all of us to create space to showcase the full breadth of indigenous life, the strength and the laughter and the beauty and the joy. Because freedom, after all, is about the ability to fully be. That's it for today, but y'all know, never for tomorrow. 
Undistracted is a production of The Meteor and Pineapple Street Studios. Our lead producer is Rachel Matlow. Our associate producer is Taylor Hosking. Thanks, as always, to Treasure Brooks, Grace Chen, and Hannes Brown. Our executive producers at The Meteor are Cindy Levy and myself, and our executive producers at Pineapple are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. You can follow me at Miss Pacchetti on all social media and our team at The Meteor. Subscribe to Undistracted and rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you check out your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being. And always, thanks for doing. I'm Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Let's go get free. <laughs>